Now, I know I, uh, I said this last week, but I want to say it again just because it's really been a delight to me. And I want to commend you for sticking with it through a difficult series like this. I'm well aware that the subject of apostasy is not pleasant. It's not easy. It's certainly not fun. But I'm thankful that even in this late hour, there are still people of God that want to hear all of His Word. So I want to commend you for sticking through it. And of course, uh, we have been on this topic for several weeks, uh, really because the New Testament, all of Scripture, but the New Testament in particular, puts a massive, massive emphasis on the topic. We illustrated that. I won't do it again. But if you just take a survey of the New Testament books that deal with this, it's really an astonishing amount of New Testament ink is given. Uh, we mentioned before that it's the second most prolific topic in all of the New Testament, the subject of apostasy. Uh, both Paul and Peter devoted huge amounts of their last letters to that. Paul's last meeting with the elders of the church at Ephesus recorded in Acts 20. That's what he told them about. In fact, he said, I had spent three years warning everyone night and day with tears. And apostasy, once again, is not talking about the world in general. It's talking about the progressive falling away among those that profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an increasing phenomenon. It's one of the major signs given to the New Testament churches. And it's one of the major warnings given repeatedly in the New Testament that you and I are to be aware of and actually do something about. Now, uh, last week, what we were talking about was what can a church do to guard against apostasy coming in the doors? And on one hand, you and I cannot stop this on a global or a national scale. It will continue. Uh, the New Testament makes it very plain. The world will not be one with the gospel during the church age. It will end at the rapture of the Lord Jesus Christ and most will go to their grave rejecting the gospel. Not because it wasn't given to them. Not because light wasn't available, but they would not. It's amazing that false religion can proliferate and any sort of even professing biblical message that gives mankind something to do to save himself. And people will flock to that. They'll fill the cathedrals and they'll pinch the incense and they'll drop money in the box. But when it comes to the truth, it cuts right across the grain of man's uh, Adamic nature. And he says, no. If I can't save myself somehow, I won't come. We have to be humbled and repent and take God's way of salvation. So while we can't stop it as a phenomenon on a national and global scale, we can absolutely guard against it as individuals and as a church. Last week we were talking more about a church, and again, that's a voluminous topic also, what to do as a church. This week we're going to talk about uh, what do I do as an individual believer to keep this maelstrom of compromise from sucking me into it and gradually drawing me away from a position of truth. Now, once again, that could take up a whole bunch of messages. I don't want to do that. 
So we're going to largely confine ourselves to this chapter in uh, 2 Peter 3, hitting on the main points. I hope we've been helped in at least one thing going through this, of being informed of what is going on. It's sort of like a soldier, before he goes into a particular battle situation, he has to be briefed, doesn't he? He has to know something about the enemy and the weapons they possess. He has to know something about the situation, the severity of the battle, and where people are trenched in at, and what the likelihood of success is. Are briefings pleasant? Not usually. Are they necessary? Yeah. Well, briefings like this are quite necessary if we want to walk uprightly in an age like this. Now, I mentioned last week, I'm going to say it one more time in passing, the doctrine of separation. That's the body of truth, again, in the whole Bible, but the New Testament gives it a, a tremendous emphasis. The doctrinal body of truth that commands us, not suggests, but commands us to get away from certain teachings, movements, people, churches, etc. There are things that if you are going to obey the Lord, you must separate from. Now that is such a big part of this discussion. I'm not going to even touch on it today. It's going to be its own message uh, when we wrap this up. But it's one of the most important facets in all of this. By the way, let me give another book recommendation for those of you who like outside reading. It was back in the late 1970s that Ernest Pickering uh, penned a book entitled Biblical Separation, The Struggle for a Pure Church. Now that became kind of a, a standard work on the topic. Not surprisingly, it's been completely maligned by this modern generation that's simply too cool to obey the whole counsel of God. I remember one article of a guy completely tearing apart Pickering's book. And his next article was how to preach the gospel using the little mermaid. Well, that tells you something about where that guy's mind is in regard to biblical doctrine. All right, now what can a believer do when living in days of exponentially increasing apostasy? I mean, you go through these passages we've gone through, and we could have spent a lot more time, but painting the picture of what the apostles said in the end times, this is going to ramp up. You're going to see this explode. When you see that happening, what can we do? And we're basically going to take Peter's counsel exactly as he wrote it and in the same order. Uh, really, much of this letter is dealing with this great falling away. So he closes, not just his last epistle, but uh, his life. This last written counsel before he suffered his own crucifixion. What can you do as an individual Christian to keep yourself from going astray? Let me just show us in verse 1 in passing. A large part of keeping yourself from being drawn aside into error is not gathering new truths, but it's continually walking in the truth that most of you already know. Uh, especially if you've been saved and you've sat under solid preaching for decades. 
I'm not saying stop learning. I don't mean that at all. We need to continue on and learning the Scriptures. But my point is, much of the error that happens today is a result of ignoring the things that people have known for a good part of their life. All of a sudden, it becomes so true, they just can't do it anymore, and they won't listen to it. It's an astounding thing. Now notice these two phrases in verse 1 and verse 2. There's one thing Peter's trying to do, and there's one thing that he's trying to produce in them. Verses 1 and 2. Stir up and be mindful. Now think about those terms. Neither one of those are focused on adding new information. I mean, for somebody who's been saved for a while... Many times it's the stewardship of the truth they already know that will spare them from destruction. In fact, this is the second time in this epistle that Peter uses the analogy of stirring them up. He said the same thing back in chapter 1. I've always found that amazing. He knew he was going to die. He knew this was his final letter. And he uses it to remind them of what they already knew. Now, uh, we were in this passage some time ago, and maybe you'll remember the illustration used of a, a paint can that's been sitting in your garage for, say, 10 years. And uh, what happens? Well, the various elements, they settle to the bottom. Most of you have done this. And you open the can, and you have no idea what color it's supposed to be. If there wasn't dribble on the rim or there wasn't that little spot they put on it to tell you or some label that described it, just looking at the paint, you have no clue what it's supposed to look like until you stir it up. You get out that stick. I almost never have one of those paint sticks. I have to pick a scrap lumber chunk or something. And so you stir it and you bring those long-held ingredients up from stagnation and back into normal usage. And the same is often true in our Christian life. Did you know that apathy and apostasy are twin sisters? I mean, you let yourself deteriorate into not caring. Not listening, already knowing, you're in trouble. I mean, if you find yourself hearing sound Bible teaching and counsel, and your heart reaction is, I already know that. Yeah, I heard that before. Yeah, I tried that, it didn't work. You should be alarmed. I mean, truths that used to cause your mind to race. It used to make your heart shout, Amen. It used to motivate you to do something. And now it's been relegated to the category of mundane old news. It happens all the time. I mean, God's people through tiredness, ongoing trials, perplexities, not seeing people respond to things like they should, not understanding how to unravel certain things, or not feeling or seeing what God's doing in a particular season. And they begin to back away from what they've known to be true for decades. Decades. <laughs> 
I mean, think about it. We get in those seasons sometimes, don't we? I think it was Wesley who said, I see more than I feel. And what he meant was he was in a particular season of life where he wanted fireworks in the soul and he wanted to open the scriptures and have the angels sing over him. But he had to walk by truth, not feeling. And sometimes we get in those seasons and the only pillars we have are the old truths that we were taught when we were young in Christ, the things that we ought to be doing that were non-negotiable. Somebody gets in the dark and they stop this. And then they stop this. And they stop this. And it's a downward spiral every single time. Now Peter's saying, I want to stir you up so that you will be mindful. You will cause to return to your mind the written scriptures that you already are aware of and in context here, primarily those scriptures that were dealing with warnings. Warnings like what's given in the following sentences. Now, in verses 3 to 7, we already covered these in an earlier message. And where we're trying to focus on is the latter half of the chapter. But I just want to touch on these as we walk through. Uh, Peter says in verse 3, Knowing this... There shall come in the last days scoffers. Peter's saying, be aware and expect an explosion, a, prol a prol proliferation of a certain type of person. And he gives three basic descriptions. One is their attitude. He says there will be scoffers or mockers, it's translated sometimes. You know, that word, the root of that actually comes from two words put together. One of those words means to play like a child. And one of them means to make sport or to jest. So put those together, that word basically speaks of a childish, immature jeering that's thrown at somebody when they, what they say doesn't seem to come to pass. Luke 14, the Lord speaking said, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, which of you is going to build a tower and not going to stop and count the cost first? Because when you don't finish it, people are going to come and what are they going to do? They're going to mock. They're going to come and say, you got to be kidding me. You said you were going to build a tower and you started and you can't finish it? My, aren't you pathetic? It's like a kid saying, you know, you said you could climb that tree in 30 seconds and you didn't. Nanny, nanny, boo, boo. And by the way, that word mockery, it's, it's, it's the same. It's essentially the same word, very closely related, that's used most of the time of the mocking thrown at Christ. He saved others. Why can't he save himself? Hey, if you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Oh, you're king of the Jews, you say. Have a robe. Here, have a crown. Mockery. And Peter says, there's going to be an explosion of that kind of attitude. And he explains their lifestyle. <clears throat> Walking after their own lusts. In other words, they are the standard and justification for whatever they do. They're completely given over to what they feel what they think, what they read, 
what they watched, and what they see with their fallen eyes. They are the standard, not the Word of God. And thirdly is their theology, or maybe I should say their lack of theology, <clears throat> which they are apparently very vocal about. You said Jesus is coming back soon. Where is he? You guys have been saying that for 2,000 years. I don't see him. Fools like Robert Ingersoll. You don't know his story. You ought to read it. It's pretty sad. <laughs> he was the guy that would blatantly challenge God in front of audiences in the late 1800s. God, if you're alive, strike me dead. The audience would sit there. <gasps> and of course, he would live and say, that proves there's no God. <laughs> it didn't prove anything, you fool. It proved that God's merciful. Trust me, Robert Ingersoll is not mocking God now. Well, what's their theology? Here's the basics. <clears throat> it's fourfold. It's a widespread and willing denial of the imminent, uh, the imminent return of Christ. It's a denial of the biblical account of creation in six literal days. It's a denial of the worldwide cataclysmic flood in judgment in the days of Noah. And it's a denial of the coming day when God destroys this present earth by fire. Now, it's a valid question there. Who exactly is Peter describing in those verses? Which, which group of people? Now, this doesn't really change the substance of what's said in the last half of the, half of the chapter, but I think it's an important consideration. Is Peter talking about the world in general? <clears throat> is there any question that we're seeing that exact fourfold manifestation happen on a global scale? I mean, those exact four tenets have taken over the schools, universities, the entertainment industry, the media, the political spectrum, and the wealthy class in general. There's no question about that. Now, good brethren may disagree, but I'm convinced that he is speaking mostly about the condition of professing believers who are spiraling downward in end times apostasy. Let me quickly give you my reasons. First, there's the connection with the last chapter. That whole chapter is giving warnings about false teachers who are worming their way into the churches. And among other things, they're described as denying the major doctrines of the faith. They have multitudes that follow their pernicious or destructive ways. And their influence among the religious masses actually causes the way of truth to be evil spoken of. They themselves are described as walking after their own fleshly lusts, rebellious against God-ordained authority, and functioning on the level of an animal. Peter calls them brute beasts. In other words, their own base passions are the driving force behind what they do. Now, of course, 
That kind of teacher that Peter warned about will inevitably produce a certain kind of disciple. Namely, one who walks after his own lust, denies the major doctrines of the faith, and mocks or speaks evil of those who walk in the way of truth. Just like Peter described in those three verses that we just read. The second reason I think this is talking about professing religious people is that this description here has generally been the condition of the world throughout the entire church age. Uh, we have to remember something when we interpret passages like this. We have to remove ourselves from the American bubble. We tend to interpret passages through the lens of the world since the Declaration of Independence. I mean, a uh, uh, hundred years ago, in this very land, the public schools read the Word of God to students on a daily basis. Now let me ask you something though. Well, that's changed obviously, but what percentage of Christian people in the last 2,000 years have lived in a country like that? Almost none. I mean, let's say you went to the average first century Roman in Peter's day, and you said, hey, that Jew that you crucified, someday soon he's going to return in great glory riding a white horse out of heaven and slaughter his millions of enemies. And what would the average Roman say to that? You've got to be kidding me. Uh, you ever read the Roman view of origins? <laughs> Where the world came from? Oh, they certainly didn't hold to the six literal days of creation. Uh, what's my point? My point is, as a whole, not just taking American history, but 2,000 years of church history, as a whole, the world system has always rejected the imminent return of Christ, the biblical account of creation, the global flood, and the coming judgment by fire. Let me give you my third reason. <clears throat> Never in history have we seen these exact denials that I just mentioned loudly proclaimed by professing Christians all over the world. I really, I, I, I appreciate everybody's patience. I know a lot of these have been long, and I, my wife can tell you I get frustrated when they go long. That's never my goal. So I, I'm not going to take the time to illustrate, but I could read page after page of evidence illustrating all the churches, or many of them today, churches that deny those four things that Peter mentions. I mean, are you aware that the majority position in the megachurch, emerging church, church growth movement has become not the Great Commission, save the planet? It was back in 2006. <clears throat> 86 evangelical leaders, sadly that name is becoming almost useless anymore, but 86 evangelical leaders, many of them very, very prominent, they get together in 2006 in a great public spectacle and they sign this document 
And they're calling on evangelicals to treat a certain matter as a pressing issue and a major priority for the churches. So what do you think that initiative was? Was it taking the Bible seriously? Was it holy living? Was it warning about apostasy? No, it was the Evangelical Climate Initiative in which the prominent evangelical leaders across America banded together to treat global warming as our major priority. You know, it's funny, I read the end of the Gospel of Matthew and maybe it's my memory, maybe, my, maybe I'm losing my memory. I don't remember Jesus saying, preach the Gospel, teach all nations, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, save Mother Earth. Many things that call themselves churches have become completely consumed with social justice issues. Misnomers like critical race theory. And rather than help, don't get me wrong on that, by the way, racism does exist. I don't even like the word racism. There's one race, according to Acts 17. But bigot, bigoted people based on color of skin have always existed. Do you know why? Not because of American politics, but because man is a depraved, wicked sinner. And you know what changes that? It's the transformation of heart that the gospel brings. That should be the focus. But rather than helping the world come to grips with root causes, uh, many churches are following the world and putting band-aids on symptoms. Have you ever noticed all the world can do is throw money at something and educate it? That's their solution to everything. Friends, look, this is heart-wrenching, very unpopular in the state in which we live, but let me give you an illustration. You see these signs all over town? Childhood hunger is a problem. It's, it's sad what kids have to go through on an evil planet. It's heart-wrenching. But what's the solution to that? When's the last time that you saw a billboard that said, childhood hunger is a problem? because thousands of moms and dads are spending their money at the casinos and the bars instead of buying groceries. Let's end that problem. You see, you don't see that. That would take an idol away. We don't want that. We've got to throw money at the symptom. And many churches are jumping on board with that. Leading the charge is this communist pope. Yes, I said that. I mean, how many churches have you seen? We were just driving through Denver recently, one of the prominent downtown assemblies flying the rainbow flag and social justice signs all over the building. Is that our commission? <laughs> you might be shocked. These are the quotes I'd like to read, but I don't have time. Do you know that many prominent names in Christendom are furious at those who teach the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, they're mad. Do you know why? Because they think that's getting in the way of saving the planet in their social gospel scheme. That's very fast becoming a majority position within so-called Christendom. And uh, by the way, the literal six-day creation and judgment from a holy God by fire have also fallen into terrible disfavor. 
In fact, if you jump down to verse 16, Peter talks about, we'll get to it in a minute, but he talks about those who rest or twist the Scriptures to their own destruction. Who twists the Scriptures? It's not the world. It's the professing religious man who does not know God. That's who twists the Scriptures. All right, but what do we do? What, what, what can we do as individuals? Knowing this is coming and is here at least to some degree. I've kind of divided this into three sections. Number one, don't be ignorant. In fact, you see that exact word in verse 8. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. You know, there's two kinds of ignorance there's one that's simply not being aware of something. I don't know that, whatever it is. The other kind of ignorance is to be aware of something, but you let that knowledge get stuffed into a closet somewhere so that it loses its influence on you, which is essentially what's being spoken of here. Peter reiterates all through this epistle, you already know this. I'm stirring you up. I'm trying to call you to remembrance. Don't be ignorant of the things which you have heard in the past and that you would answer correctly on some sort of biblical trivia test. Don't lose sight of what those actually mean walking in shoe leather right now. He's saying... In this first verse, verse 8, deliberately train your mind to remember that God is timeless. Now, what does that word timeless mean? He goes on to explain that with the Lord, a day is with a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Here's what he's not saying it's not merely a comparison statement. He's not saying, you know, God lives forever, and so by comparison, one day and a thousand years really aren't that far apart. It would be like you saying, well, I live 90 years maybe, and a second and an hour aren't really that different in the grand scheme of 90 years. That's not what he's saying. Let me explain why. For that to be true, God would have to be subject to time. Here's what timelessness means. God dwells entirely outside of time. He's not subject to it. It does not affect Him. He created it and He put you and I inside of it. So, in other words, time words, words to time reference have no application to God Himself. None whatsoever. God is the eternal now. He is just as much right now in the past as in the present as in the future. In fact, past, present, and future are creature words. Why do we need to be reminded of that? Because we naturally tend to think of God on a human level. What happens to human love or wrath or energy or purposes after even 50 years, they wax dim with age or 
increased wisdom or changed perspective or priority changes. All of those have to do with creatures. Now I ask you, what has happened to God's wrath? Let's pick a man like Cain. Cain lived on this earth as we see it about 6,000 years ago. What has happened to God's wrath towards a man like Cain? Well, surely, after six millennia, it's dissipated. I mean, surely monsters like Adolf Hitler have risen to the top. You see, there's two problems with that. One is we forget God is infinite. And what God does, it's as though nobody else existed. It's just you and Him. The second thing we forget is God is timeless. Do you know that God is right now still seeing Cain's past wicked life in real time? Just like He's watching you in eternity right now if you are His child. Now, uh, what about His promises? Especially the promises to judge this world and take us out of here. What happened to the promises of the rapture? You guys have been saying that for two millennia. What does it mean I come quickly? In roughly 95 AD. Have his promises waxed dim with age? Does a seeming delay mean he's not serious? Or at least not as motivated as he once was? You see, when it comes to God himself... No time has passed. It's all the same to him. He's unchanging, unaffected by the passing of the calendar. Now, why is that important? Why would Peter say, don't be ignorant of that? Because when we lose sight of God's timelessness, we start losing sight of why the world is still here in the first place. You ever sat and wondered that? You look at all the, the suffering and the misery in this earth, and uh, I've said it before, oh, Lord Jesus, can't you come today? Usually because of some selfish reason that I want to get out of a particular trial. It's okay to want the Lord to return. But what's the biblical answer for why the world is still here? Hmm? It's not because there is not sufficient reason to destroy it by fire this very second. It's not because God's holy nature isn't offended and grieved and angered on a daily basis. Oh, it is. How about this news flash? It's not because He's waiting for us to fix the planet so He can come back or waiting for the Republican Party to retake the White House in 2024 because that'll fix everything, right? Not hardly. What's the reason? It's given right here in verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness. Slack means late, delayed. Humanity looks and says, there must be some lesser reason God is waiting. Maybe it's not as important, or maybe He's just late. I don't know, maybe He's busy dealing with China and He doesn't have time for us over here. And Peter says, God isn't slack. He's not late like some men look on the human level and accuse Him of with their mockery. What's the reason given? He's long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why is the reason still here? 
Because God wants men to be saved. What is stopping this world this very second from being incinerated? It's not because the United States of America deserves the grace of God. We do not. If you're sitting here lost this morning, I wonder if you've thought recently about what is keeping you from being hurled into everlasting fire this instant. It's not your goodness. It's that a merciful God wants you to come to Him. And He's given you time. We don't know how much time, but that's the reason. Now verse 10, we're reminded further in light of God's timelessness that the day of the Lord... Now that's a big, big concept. Day of the Lord essentially in the Scriptures is a time period when the judgment of God is unleashed and His kingdom is established for good. So it covers a broad section of time. But he reminds us in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come. And he says it will come how? As a thief. That means there's no immediate warning whatsoever. I think a lot of people console themselves thinking that even if the return of Christ was true, there'll be some kind of sign, some kind of hair raising on the back of my neck, or some kind of quiver in my liver, or some kind of shining up in the stars that will clue me in that it's coming. And then, then I'll repent. In fact, what Paul says elsewhere, when they are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. So, as far as world events, the world will be right at the cusp of realizing their self-created utopic Babylon. And there'll be no external warning whatsoever except this. And the boom will fall. And the day of judgment will come. And what's going to happen to this earth? Well, global warming is going to happen. It's in verse 10. In fact, sometimes that can be an interesting conversation starter. Do you believe in global warming? Absolutely. Only it's a lot faster and a whole lot hotter than evil men can ever comprehend. Hey, look at the description in verse 10. The day of the Lord's going to come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. What do you think the explosion of the stellar bodies sounds like? Apparently, there'll be this otherworldly roaring sound. He'll pass away with a great noise, he said, unlike any man has ever heard. And then he says, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The, the basic building blocks, nitrogen, 
hydrogen, oxygen, the rest of the periodic table. I don't know for certain how God's going to do it. But I happen to know that just a handful of the right atoms has enough energy into it, in it to destroy entire cities. And my mind just has to wonder what a nuclear chain reaction involving all the elements in the universe might look like. And then, just in case we missed it, he says, and the earth. That's topside. That's what you see right now. The earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Think of the works that are therein. All of the impressive architecture. I mean, all of the historical archives from cuneiform to microfiche to the cloud. All the literature and art and music. All the various halls of fame. All of the Vince Lombardi trophies and the New York Stock Exchange and the U.S. Treasury and Mints and the gold at Fort Knox and the White House and the Capitol and all the monuments. All the written decisions of the Supreme Courts that have ever existed. All the national forests and the wonders of the world and the shopping malls and the theaters and the museums and the stadiums and the bunkers and the storm shelters and the caves and the rocks and the dirt and the dust and the water, all of it will go up in flames right down to the atom. So he's saying... Don't be ignorant or lose sight of God's timelessness in the midst of the passing of days. He's not late. He's not suffering the ravages of age and decreased passions. He's not waiting for you and I to save the earth. Not that we don't have a commission, we do. But everything is right on schedule. All right, secondly... Verses 11 to 13, realize that this earth is a sinking ship and live like it. I mean, what should be our reaction? I mean, think for a minute of all your eyes have ever laid sight upon. Here's the moment you're born. One of those little slits opens up and we see the face of your mother the lights of the delivery room, maybe the, the doctor and all the instruments in there. And let's say that you're awake roughly 16 hours a day for 50 years. That's, that's a good average. That means that your eyes have taken in roughly 292,000 hours of visual information. You've seen a lot, haven't you? But now think about the fact that except for the bodies of believers, which will be resurrected, everything those eyes have ever seen is heading for God's cosmic bonfire. Everything. So Peter says, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, if that's true, it should radically change our lifestyle. And living on this earth is like riding on the Titanic after it hit the iceberg. 
It's only a matter of time, and the ship is going down, and only a fool who understands the situation is going to be consumed with reorganizing his stateroom because the only rational course of action is to prepare himself and others for departure. Here's the effect it should have. Verse 10, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? That truth should produce in us a holy lifestyle and godliness. That's what the word conversation means, lifestyle. What does holy mean? Oh, is it a misunderstood concept? Holy is not something that sits in a building somewhere. Holy is not something somebody is because they put on some kind of uniform or robe. Holiness speaks not just of purity, but of distinctness. In fact, intrinsic in the word holy is a separation from that which defiles. We'll get into that more next week. In other words, Peter's saying your daily life should broadcast the fact that this world is not your final home. Apostate Christianity, Christianity in quotes, is consumed today with trying to show this godless world how much it is just like them. Peter says if you believe this world's going up in smoke, you are going to live like you're not just like them. Not because you're better. You're a sinful dirtbag just like me and just like everybody else, but because you know who God is and you know where this world's heading and you're looking for a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. Holy lifestyle, he says, and godliness. Piety. It's a, godliness is a... A serious-minded determination to see things like God does. Uh, listen, a godly person doesn't walk around looking like they sucked on a lemon. That's not godliness. A godly person is on the road of learning to hate what God hates, to love what God loves, to value what God values to listen to what God says and to value His opinion more than any number of thousands of rebels that exist in the world today because it's Him that made you and it's Him who you're going to. And it's His opinion that's going to matter on the day of judgment and nothing else will. Now part of that is cultivating the right expectations. Look in verse 12 looking for and hasting unto. Hasting is an incredible word. We kind of get, if somebody's hasty, what does that mean? They're, they're sort of rush headlong into stuff. That's not an irresponsible word here, the way it's used. But hasting means to lean towards and long for. The day when God wipes out this present earth and a new heaven and new earth appear that are filled with righteousness. How many of you look forward to the day when every wrong is made right? When this upside down system here is turned right side up with God where he should be on top. Oh, I long for that. The 
Peter says, if you have a right view of God's timelessness and what's coming on this planet in a short time, then that's going to make you lean towards and long for the day of God. Can you say that that is your great desire this morning? Is that what you are consumed with? Friends, listen, I know the views vary on the last election. I get it. And I'm not saying don't be informed. But as a pastor, and I'm not alone, many pastors are voicing this opinion right now. They grieve that many of God's people are absolutely consumed with so-called conservative media. I'm not saying don't know what's going on. We should. But do you realize, I don't care if it's Newsmax or Fox or One News Now or the Epic Times or whatever else it is, it has no eternal value. Do you understand that? They can give you no eternal answers. Here's what they're going to give you. Every single day, in fact, every single hour, something else to worry about and something else to be afraid of and something else to be mad about. You know that's true if that's you. And so all of a sudden we're consumed, not with Jesus coming back, and not with the timelessness of God, and not the day of my accountability. But did you hear what Nancy Pelosi said? What Mr. Schumer did? I think I'm going to let that ruin my whole day. Why? Did they dethrone Jesus Christ? They are not even a drop in a bucket. Do you understand that? Do you realize the Democrat Party and the Republican Party, for that matter, aren't even a piece of dust in light of what's coming? Know what's going on. Yes, vote. Please vote. But recognize this is only for this vapor. It's not your longing. It's not your hope. All right, verse 14 to 18. Lastly, be diligent. See, there's a progression here. In verse 8, he says, don't be ignorant. Understand that God is timeless. Call that to mind. That the Lord isn't slack. He's merciful. Everything's right on time. The day of the Lord's going to come exactly when He says... And based on that, verse 11, seeing that all these things are going to be dissolved, here's how you should live. And then verse 14, wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things. In Sunday school, one of the things we've been talking about is connectives, understanding the structure of passages in the scriptures to make proper application. Here's a, here's a shining example of that fact. Wherefore, all right, so here's what Peter's saying. Now, now do this. And you notice as we walk through that, right theology proper, that's the view of God's character and nature and purposes. When that sinks into the soul, that leads to a longing for a right lifestyle and an expectation for eternal considerations. And that in turn translates into right daily actions. 
Oh, there's a lot of tragedies with denying the imminency of Christ's return, but that's one of the reasons why something like holiness has been thrown out in the dumpster of most ministries. Save the planet. Fix old Mother Earth. Show the world how much we love it. No. So, verse 14, wherefore? He says, be diligent. Don't just talk about it. Don't just believe these things in theory. Make it your daily goal to put in effort and toil to be ready to meet the Lord face to face. I mean, see, a daily, if we could just spend five or ten minutes a day j just thinking about the description given here. And trust me, I don't do that all the time. And I'm the one standing here teaching this. But as I get better at it, I can tell you what it's going to produce. The things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Be diligent to do what? To be found in Him. To be found of Him in peace without spot and blameless. In peace means tranquility or as much as lies with you to be at peace with all men. Can you imagine the shame that will occur when many true believers are raptured out of here in the middle of carrying petty carnal grudges with somebody an unrepentant, stupid sin that means nothing in the light of eternity, and they go right from that evil behavior and that simmering bitterness right to the face of Christ. And Peter's saying, make sure that's not you. Walk in peace today as much as lies with you because He's coming back and you want to be ready to meet Him. Uh, without spot, not straddling the fence, not making excuses for borderline or evil behavior, free from vice. I mean, you can ask yourself the question, is it more important to you to make sure that you're spotless in your walk with God or to make sure that other fallen sinners think well of you and you get what you want? You see, God's the standard, not other people. And then blameless. No legitimate accusation that could be brought against you that you haven't dealt with as much as lies with you. How many of you sin on a daily basis? I don't want to. I hope I don't plan to. But I'm a sinner. I don't say that lightly and I'm not laughing. But there's a difference between understanding that fact and wanting to cultivate a walk with God and dealing with sin consistently as you're aware of it or just letting it pile up in the background somewhere as you get blinder and blinder and turn more and more over to apostasy until the day King Jesus takes you out of here. And you realize you have no more time left to deal with it on this earth. And keep in mind, verse 15, always remember, account, he says, that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. In other words, the delay we see today is because God has an evangelistic heart. 
I, I can scarcely fathom how offended God must be over sin, but as I, as I grow even a little in that, I find God's patience is absolutely astonishing. I mean, think, some of you know the conversation in the U.S. Senate recently, or Congress. The opinions of some religion are of no bearing on this Congress. Remember that? Why didn't the fire of God fall from heaven and destroy the place? Because he's merciful. That's why. He's merciful. By the way, sadly, those words are largely true. The opinion of God has very little bearing on our Congress anymore. So you hear people around you, and, and being made in the image of God, many people can look around and say something's wrong. <laughs> something's wrong with this old world. And, and they may complain. Things are getting so bad. It is. But we can remind them of a few facts with biblical boldness. Number one, you cannot jettison the Word of God and expect it to go well with you as a person or a nation especially in a country like this with how much light we've been given. Number two, God is only withholding judgment because He desires all men to be saved. And number three, this evil world is nothing compared to the everlasting burning that lost men are heading for. I mean, you realize somebody, somebody rejects Christ and goes to their grave. This same world they complained about is as close to heaven as they're ever going to get. Because they would not bow the knee to the king. And he says, remember verse 16, that those who are ignorant and unstable will continue to twist and distort the word of God. I find it amazing that he especially references Paul's epistles there and says that they're hard to be understood it really, it's amazing that you hear the, uh, the apostate ministers out there chewing on certain passages of Scripture and trying to reject them, and one of their favorite targets is Paul. Did you know, according to the emerging churches, that Paul is a chauvinist who suffered from toxic masculinity? Did you know that? That's what's out there. It's a bunch of baloney. What are they doing? These are unlearned, ignorant, unstable people who are twisting the Scriptures to their own destruction. And Peter's saying, don't let that shock you. It's going to keep happening. All right, now, 17 and 18, and we're done. They really give us two sides of the same coin. When it comes to a believer guarding him or herself from apostasy, there's two primary, primary verbs given in verse 17 and 18. Here's what they are. Beware and grow. Beware and grow. Now, immediately, I'm reminded of the rebuilding of the wall back in Nehemiah's day. They had a commission from the Lord. They had a great work to do, Nehemiah said. And to the human eye, the job seemed nearly impossible, and there was a great deal to discourage them if they were looking for it. I mean, the piles of rubble themselves were overwhelming. They had to deal with hundreds of tons of garbage before even going forward. And then there was the constant heartache of the past and what might have been had our ancestors just listened. And more than that, they're surrounded by intimidating enemies. 
some of whom had infiltrated their own rakes, powerful enemies. And you go through the different solicitations there, and it's really quite a list. There's mockery. You've got to be kidding me. You can't do anything serious over here. There's rage. There's threats. There's the, hey, why don't you come dialogue with us? Now, satanic imposters always want to dialogue, by the way. Treachery, deceit, infiltration, compromise. All these are thrown at Nehemiah and the Jews rebuilding the wall. And so as the men worked, most of you know the story, they had two very different tools. They had one in each hand. On one hand, they had a sword. And the other hand, they had a trowel. They had a weapon for defense and protection. Fearful weapon. And they had a tool for the ongoing building project. And really, it's the same with us. Those two instruments. I mean, the solution today to what we're talking about is not to go full militia mode. Some sort of spiritual Rambo where all the energy is spent defending and warning and naming names and firing ammo and all you do is rip people down. But separate, separation is important. We'll talk about it next week. But separation itself does not build anything. It defends against things. It's necessary. But separation itself does not build. Neither is the solution lay down the sword because you can build twice as fast with two trowels. That's exactly what New Evangelicalism did in the late 1940s. The whole movement decided to go forward preaching with two trowels and no sword. And by the way, that's why they've been infiltrated with Sanballat and Tobias ever since. We need both. Look at the word beware. I mean, what does that actually, for that word to mean anything, what's included in it? Well, first of all, you have to be convinced the danger is very real. You ever see one of these signs somebody has, beware of dog, and then on the other side of the fence is a Yorkie with a pink bow on its head? And of course, they're being funny, but I fear many of God's people look at warnings of apostasy like that. Oh yeah, we should, we should beware. But they seem to think beyond that fence is a Yorkie with a pink bow on its head that you can just kick when you decide. So, beware means you have to be convinced the danger's real. Peter says, seeing you know these things beforehand. Secondly, you have to realize that you are personally susceptible to the danger. You are personally susceptible to the danger. Which of God's people are immune to apostasy? None except those already gone to glory. He says to them, Beware lest ye also... Now these were people taught personally by apostles who actually knew the men who wrote the Scriptures. And Peter said, Beware lest you also be led astray. And thirdly, you have to take action to keep yourself from falling victim. The word beware means to be on guard. Don't be naive. Because any one of us can be led astray with the error of the wicked. So what happens along with bad doctrine, bad life? You fall from your own steadfastness. I mean, what will the devil use? He'll use the same list he threw at Nehemiah. Dialogue, threat, mockery, 
infiltration, compromise, deceit, treachery, extortion, bribery, you name it. Same bag of tricks. All right, what's the other side of that coin, though? He says, grow. Grow. Not stay. Did you know there's no such thing as stopping in the Christian walk? If somebody says, I, I think I've stopped growing. That means you're going backwards. That's what that means. Now, kids don't do this. Some of you probably have. I remember we used to go to these malls in Anchorage. And our favorite way to get up to the upstairs floor was the escalator that was going the other direction. I don't know why. I just I like running up the escalator that was going down. The security did not like that idea very much. The Christian life, though, is very much like walking up that escalator going down. You stop, you go back. It takes effort to stay where you are, let alone go forward. So Peter says, keep growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how? How? See, now we're back, right back to the basics, stirring you up by way of remembrance. We were there last week in Acts 2. What did the early church give themselves to? They continued steadfastly. They kept going through thick and thin. What they saw, what they felt, doesn't matter. They kept going steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, sound teaching, fellowship, being around God's people constantly, breaking of bread, and in corporate prayer. Now, those are the basics. So, uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2, it's a disposition of yieldedness to God in every known area. That, that's always an issue in our Christian life. And included in that is washing our mind daily with the Scriptures and ongoing prayer. And prayer, by the way, is like exploring the ocean. You've never arrived. You just keep going deeper, hopefully. Here's another huge means is taking the local church with the kind of seriousness that God gives it in the New Testament. Friends, it's amazing the stuff you hear. I, there's people that would say, you're only saying that because you're a pastor. <laughs> Do you know why I'm saying that? Because the New Testament emphasizes that over and over and over and over and over again. That's why. And if I'm going to teach the Scriptures accurately, I had better emphasize it like God does. Friends, being an integral part of a local assembly is not optional. It is essential if you don't want to be led astray. I challenge you, if you disagree, go through your New Testament and pay attention to what's said and prove that wrong. But here's the grievous thing. Nowadays, the constant tide is to treat church like a buffet restaurant. I acknowledge there's some good food there, but I go when I want, and I only dish up what I want. And I want to challenge you, if you take your spiritual growth seriously, don't treat the local church like a buffet restaurant. Treat it as what God calls it, the pillar and ground of the truth. Or what he says in Ephesians 4, 
specifically in a local church setting, the things that happen there are so that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with strange doctrine. In other words, consistent involvement in a solid church keeps you from apostasy. I mean, there's no such thing as a vigilant defense against apostasy while ignoring the importance of the local assembly. I mean, think, and let me just say this too. You, we're almost done, I promise. But, and I hope, I hope this is an encouragement to showing us what is so necessary to stand against this stuff. Most of us know Hebrews 10.25. You can quote it. Forsake not the assembling of ourselves together. But I wonder if you know the verse before it. I'll read it to you. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. So on one hand, he's saying, there's always going to be this pressure to back away from the assembly, and it is most certainly a pressure today. And he's saying, as you see the day approaching, is anybody here doubt that apostasy is happening? Does anybody here doubt that the world has lost its mind? Does anybody here doubt that the Word of God is hated by most of the world? What should our reaction be? Being around God's people all the more. Now, notice what it said in that verse 24. What happens in a church meeting? If you look at a church meeting, by the way, I show up, I hear a sermon, I go home. Boy, are you missing a lot of what's said here. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. Why are we gathered together? Yes, preaching is part of it. That's huge. But do you know another huge part? is so you and I can provoke one another through mutual accountability and encouragement and charity to provoke each other unto love and good works. And do you know that as you know and exercise your spiritual gift, you help keep other believers from apostasy? Now somebody says, well, I, I just listen to sermons. Don't get me wrong, that's great. And there's times where that's all somebody can do. There's lots of circumstances. But when you have better options, that's a bad substitute of a local church. I don't know how many times I've heard that in the last 15 or 20 years. But here's my question. What believers are you pouring into? Who are you provoking to love and good works? How are you learning and exercising your giftedness in a way that will build up the local body, whether it's this one or whatever one God wants you in? That will mutually encourage and strengthen and help your brothers and sisters in Christ not to go astray in this horrific warfare that we're involved in. Because that's what it is. Peter's saying, don't be like the Dead Sea. I mean, if you're a body of water, you think incoming water is a good thing, right? Why is the Dead Sea 33% salt and kills everything living? Because it only has inflow. It never gives out. The same can happen to us. 
So all right, don't be ignorant of God's timelessness, the fact that he's extending mercy to a wicked world and that the day of judgment will come like a thief in the night. Meditate on the fact that this present world will be entirely incinerated and as a result live like pilgrims. Determine you're not going down with the ship. You're not going to live like those that are going down with the ship. You're going to get in the lifeboat. You're going to bring others to the lifeboat. And you're going to look and hasten towards a new heaven and a new earth. And while you walk this barren land, carry your sword and your trowel, defend against error, and build lives for the glory of God. Because we don't have much time left. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray you'd help us to profit from uh, these passages this morning and to internalize them. We've covered a lot, and maybe too much, I don't know, but Lord, help us. Help us to be convinced in a way that dramatically affects our daily outlook that this world is heading for destruction. Help us to live holy lives. Lord, not, not snobbish lives. Not lives where we think we're better than anybody. Lord, we know you despise that mindset. But lives where for your sake, we want to live holy because you are holy. Help us, Lord, to be ambassadors for Christ to a lost world. But also help us to grow. Lord, I know we live in the land of isolationism and self-sufficiency as a culture. But I pray you'd help us to provoke one another to love and good works. Help us to grow in our understanding of what it means to be the body of Christ with all of its parts functioning. In Jesus' name, amen.